This is Dr. Ronald Hoffman. As you know, I'm a big proponent of CBD to tonify the endocannabinoid system. I've found that it helps people relax and can support restful sleep, a real breakthrough in herbal products. The CBD brand I take personally and recommend to my patients is Plus CBD from CV Sciences. And now I'm excited about a new natural wellness line from Plus CBD, CBD Calm and CBD Sleep. CBD Calm helps ease tension, soothe irritability, and contributes to a greater sense of contentment through a blend of Plus CBD's award-winning full-spectrum CBD, plus L-theanine, and 5-HTP. CBD Sleep aids occasional sleeplessness with CBD plus melatonin, as well as soothing magnolia bark extract and relaxing lemon balm so you can get the rest you need and wake up alert and focused. Both products are backed by science with clinically researched active ingredients. To learn more and to order, visit pluscbdoil.com Hoffman and use coupon code Hoffman30 for 30% off. That's pluscbdoil.com slash Hoffman. Welcome to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoffman. Today's guest is Dr. Richard Ammerling. He's an outspoken critic of what's going down in our medical system. He is recently the author of an intriguing article entitled The Tyranny of Evidence-Based Medicine. So I asked myself, what could be wrong with evidence-based medicine? Evidence-based medicine sounds eminently reasonable. We don't want uh, medicine by, uh, I don't know, divining rod, or we don't want to uh, uh, cut open animals and uh, check out their entrails to determine what we should do in medicine. We don't want uh, just to follow folkloric uh, legend in terms of what can work. Uh, For a long time, that set us back in the field of medicine because we had bloodletting, and we had uh, leeching, and we had all kinds of really crazy practices. And so evidence-based medicine uh, became the face of modern medicine. Dr. Ameline is a, a critic of all-encompassing evidence-based medicine. He is a board-certified nephrologist. He's a good colleague of mine from New York City. Uh, recently, he taught uh, medical students. Uh, now he's uh, active as Associate Medical Director of America's Frontline Doctors. I believe also you were uh, past president of the American Association of Physicians and Surgeons. Is that correct, Richard? Correct. Okay. Well, okay. So uh, evidence-based medicine, uh, so prominent a concept that it's uh, got itself an acronym, EBM, and everybody in medicine should believe in evidence-based medicine, shouldn't they? What's wrong with that? Well, because... It turns out not to be all that scientific. In fact, it's more of a cult than a science. And what do I mean by that? First of all, it's recent. It's about 20 years old or maybe a little more. It was, it was a concoction of a couple of academic internal medicine guys, mainly in Canada, David Sackett being the most prominently known, uh, that he wanted to bring more rationality, shall we say, into the practice of medicine. And he felt that uh, a lot of the base of medicine were poorly designed studies and anecdotal experience and uh, tradition, which was true to a certain extent. Okay, Uh, And he wanted to formalize the process by which doctors evaluate uh, the medical literature for the most part. So they created a a hierarchy of evidence 
at the very top, the randomized double-blind controlled trial. The so-called and RCTs. Then, the R- the just, yeah, the right. RCT. And then uh, uh, going down, uh, randomized uh, non-controlled trials, uh, observational studies, etc., all the way down to the bottom of this pyramid of evidence, which is what they call anecdotal experience. And what is that? Well, it's clinical observations. <laughs> I mean, clinical observations along with things like pathology and basic sciences, microbiology, biochemistry, physiology, pathophysiology, anatomy, this has formed the, the crux of medical practice over the last 100 years or so. And medicine has had a scientific basis since the early 1900s, at least, when we started to learn about uh, circulation of blood in the 1800s, uh, the anatomy the the, uh, inc- the incredible work of pathologists who would cut up biopsy specimens, stain them, and get an understanding of what was going on at the tissue level. So we've been very scientific in our approach to medicine for a long time before the EBM movement, which started in the 90s. So I went to medical school in the 70s and early 80s and had a traditional, highly scientific medical education very heavy emphasis emphasis on the basic sciences. And then clinical medicine, which is the wealth of information that has been gathered by our forebears in medicine over millennia, literally, on the identification of patterns of symptoms that we create, that we make into what we call a diagnosis, right? A diagnosis is an artificial intellectual construct that has been put together by close clinical observation looking for similarities in presentations between different patients. And that's how we've come up with our taxonomy of disease, right? Mm -hmm. So this is a major intellectual achievement. The, the, The scientific practice of medicine is a major intellectual achievement and has done wonders. And, uh, to, say that this is sort of bad and we need to replace it with the so-called EBM got my head, uh, got me scratching my head. Now, I first became aware of EBM back in the 90s when people were talking about it at uh, conferences and all this stuff. But I never was all that concerned about it. So, yeah, sure, it sounds reasonable. Who, who could be against EBM, evidence-based medicine, of course. But then I started to see guidelines trickle into the practice of medicine mm-hmm. in the early 2000s. In nephrology, the first that caught my eye were produced by a group called DOKI, D-O-Q-I, the Dialysis Outcome Quality Initiative. And this was mostly designed to create guidelines for treatment of the anemia associated with chronic kidney disease. Well, the by far principal sponsor of this guideline group, panelists, was good old Amgen. Amgen was heavily behind these guidelines. And when you look at them in that light, you can see that they were an advertising mechanism for promoting their product, Epogen, to treat the anemia of chronic kidney disease. And they were, these were later on enhanced. They, they added on not just dialysis patients, but chronic kidney disease patients, and that became KDOKI, also heavily sponsored by Amgen and the other big players in the kidney arena, such as uh, Genzyme, Abbott Labs, uh, gosh, a few others, but the, these are all manufacturers of the major pharmaceuticals and test, testing stuff that is used in chronic kidney disease patients. 
So they, they were behind the creation of these guidelines. And the majority of the panelists who wrote the guidelines were paid by them as speakers, as consultants. And this was very obvious uh, with a little casual digging. It was very obvious because they, they state this stuff, right? In the guideline documents, there's a financial disclosure page. Also, in every guideline, by the way, is the disclaimer that these are for guidance. These are not supposed to be rules for treatment. One of my arguments against guidelines, and I was an early vocal critic of guidelines. There were articles about it, and I lectured, and I debated, and I did a lot against guidelines back in the 2000s, early 2000s. One of my fears was that once you create these guidelines, you can't stop them from being used in any way. Mm-hmm. So you put them out there. You put your approval on them. You uh, you you stamp these this document with the authority of this group, whatever it is that was pulled together, usually sponsored now by medical societies and professional uh, specialty societies, promote guidelines a lot. And they go out there and they are going to be used to change how you are paid, right? If you, right. you're going to get paid about for reimbursement, right? Because on, you depart from the guidelines and they say, well, yeah. you know, I'm sorry, that's not a standard treatment. It's not uh, according to uh, the approved uh, algorithm for how we, you know, deal with this disease and you're denied coverage. Yeah, they're, they're going to pay you based on how well you perform uh, according to the guidelines, you know, how many numbers you meet and targets you meet, like get your your hemoglobin A1C targets uh, below a certain level, you're going to get paid a little more, a few more pennies, really. I mean, that's really what it came down to. Uh, and then ultimately, they are going to completely control the way you practice medicine mm-hmm. based on the guidelines that you guys wrote. OK, and I said this years ago. And they would not listen to me, obviously, because they have proliferated, if anything. I mean, when I started writing about this stuff, there were maybe a thousand guidelines out there. Now there are probably 10 times that that, that number. But what you're seeing now, and the, the article I wrote was the tyranny of evidence-based medicine. In the response to COVID-19, mm-hmm. you see it in all of its glory. Right. Because doctors have been told how to not treat this disease. Right. Right. The the effective ban on early treatment with hydroxychloroquine, iver, uh, later on ivermectin. But, you know, you looking back into March, we already had the Zelenko protocol out there. And Didier Raoul, who was doing great work in Marseille, France. We knew from these pioneers how to treat covid in its early stages. And that should have been applied around the world immediately. Why wasn't it? Well, because of the tyranny of evidence-based medicine. The guidelines did not allow it. The guidelines from the WHO, from the NIH, from the CDC, said, no, don't. Don't treat these patients early on with drugs that we already knew by then were very effective. Didier Raoul showed it. Zelenko showed it. Brian Tyson in California showed it. Many others showed it. And by the way, Ron, you know, this is how we used to practice medicine. Mm-hmm. We would we would defer to the judgment of our colleagues. By the way, another of my old colleagues, Peter, Pierre Corey, has been on the front lines in the intensive care unit as an early treater with ivermectin. He's been ivermectin. He's been extremely vocal, and he's published on this. And he's been 
uh, censored, blocked, uh, met with all sorts of opposition, fired from his jobs for taking the stand. He's very courageous. But I, when I saw Pierre Corey, who I've known for years because we worked together at Beth Israel, he was in the intensivist there. I was the nephrologist. We worked together a lot. I knew him well. I know him well. I, I trust him completely as a physician and a scientist. So th this is and an experienced out, physician, and he's not a, just a theoretician or some outsider. That's right. Uh, he is in, truly in the belly of the beast, treating patients on a, on a regular basis, the most critically ill patients. He has uh, decades of experience, and uh, he's innovative in his approach. And, you know, with a crisis of, of COVID looming, uh, you know, we had to kind of improvise. When I saw him come out and testify in front of the Senate, I stood up and applauded. I was so proud of him, my former colleague, for taking the stand. But personally, I then knew beyond the shadow of any doubt that the drug was effective and safe because he wouldn't be endorsing it. He wouldn't be putting his whole career on the line endorsing a bogus drug. Plus, he had no secondary gain. He was like not getting paid to take that stand. Unlike all of the other stakeholders in this whole scam are getting incredible paydays for censoring guys like Pierre and, and blocking hydroxychloroquine use, which we know was effective and still is. So that was the way we used to practice. We used to refer patients who were very sick to the most experienced clinicians the people that really knew how to take care of patients. And they knew because they saw the patients, they saw what worked, and they also were up on the literature, right? They were not academically slouches. They knew the science. Pierre knows the science. Another of my old colleagues uh, is Peter McCullough. Peter mm -hmm. and I used to run into each other at nephrology meetings around the world, notably in Vicenza, Italy. We had a great great time there on several occasions where we were speakers and he was his angle was the cardiorenal stuff right he, he's a cardiologist and he got into cardiorenal medicine and became leading expert frankly on that issue and, and and ended up publishing a journal cardiorenal medicine and so when i saw him take a stand for early treatment and testify in front of the senate again i knew immediately that this was legitimate. This was the way to go. Richard, it, it's, actually, it's actually to the point, excuse me, where if you even uh, repost uh, a like a, a YouTube of Peter McCullough, uh, not only will it be taken down, but you can get uh, thrown off Twitter. You could get uh, suspended. You can get put, put into Facebook jail merely for allowing him a forum to share his somewhat controversial views. That, that's how bad it's gotten. I know. And this is, again, uh, we, we, we need to remind ourselves and your audience that this is completely unprecedented in the history of medicine, that this incredibly hardline censorship of doctors who are out there trying to help patients and reporting on their experiences is unprecedented, and it can only be agenda-driven, i.e., Pharma-driven. Let's be honest, okay? Only pharma, Pfizer, these giants have the money and the clout and the influence to tell these communications companies and these television networks who they advertise heavily in, you, you, you know, which is obvious immediately as soon as you turn on any TV show, 
that they must not allow this information out there. They issued the order to censor and censor they did. And we've never seen this before in medicine. Never, ever. This is brand new and it's complete tyranny. And how do they do it? I mean, they justify it based on EBM, right? That's what they ultimately say, that this is not uh, recommended. This is not NIH. This is not FDA approved. It's not recommended. Doctors have never been inhibited from practicing their craft and their art because of some official recommendation. We ignore the FDA. We pro- prescribe off-label off right. medications That is a doctor's prerogative, all yes. All the time. Yes. There, there would be very little practice going on if we couldn't do off-label prescribing. So to use hydroxychloroquine as an example, for which there was already a very solid uh, scientific basis, mechanism of action, which was established during SARS-1. It was not just pulled out of the out of thin air, right? Didier Raoul knew that this drug was antiviral. Fauci knew it was antiviral. He suppressed it, of course, during this epidemic. So he is really, you know, a, a, a very bad player in this. We, let's be let's be honest. I mean, RFK RFK has him pegged to a T. I'm reading his book now. It is a it is. Must reading. Everybody I, I, I am, must I'm reading it as well. Reading. In fact, I, I wrote a little mini yeah. review of, of that along with the Scott Atlas book and the Alex Berenson book, uh, trio books that are right. on my uh, holiday reading list. And I recommend them to our listeners. Yeah, they're, all, they're on my Kindle as we speak. Those are the next two that I'm going to get, get into. No, really uh, crucial to understand all the stuff that has been going on because this is a defining moment in, in the history of the world, certainly in the history of medicine. And when I, you know, so one of my things with AAPS going back now decades is the uh, Association of American Physicians and Surgeons has been around since the 40s, and they have consistently fought hard against the uh, corporatization of medicine, against the governmental takeover of medicine, beginning with the fight against Medicare and Medicaid, which, by the way, you're going to talk about the AMA. That was the last good fight the American the American Medical Association was involved in. I mean, that was the last time they were on the right side of an issue, as far as I can tell. And a lot of people may say, you know, that that sounds you know terrible because uh, you know Medicare is so beneficial to the uh, seniors and uh, Medicaid is so beneficial to uh, poor people. So how can you possibly be against them? But from uh, the perspective of uh, physicians' autonomy, uh, they've been. Uh, catastrophic. They've really uh, limited physicians' options in terms of treating patients. And frankly, they've been responsible for driving some of the most gifted physicians uh, out of practice because it's just no longer tenable uh, the way they want to process bodies uh, and essentially use paint-by-numbers medicine. That's right. But of course, it started out as a very generous offer to doctors. Yes, we will pay your bills. We will pay you the UCR, usual, customary, and what was the other one? (laughs) Uh, And usual, customary fees of physicians. Mm -hmm. No questions asked. You submit your bill, you get paid. So doctors got bribed into accepting Medicare. The AMA, to their credit, was saying, no, this is the road to socialized medicine and how right they were. So over the years, Medicare payment got increasingly restricted, reduced, you had to jump through increasing numbers of hoops uh, just to get the payment, which was dwindling away to the point where you had to see 
more and more patients just to make your same amount of money if you had a big Medicare practice. And that's what happened. Uh, everybody drove up volume. Actually, what that did is it drove up the overall cost of care. And I actually wrote a paper about this many years ago, published it, uh, showing that the, the more uh, you restrict physicians' payments, the more care becomes expensive because the key component in controlling costs in medical care is doctor attention to a patient. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you agree with that. Yeah, yeah. Right? The and more personalized time you spend care, you know, out, Right, exactly. Yeah, the, the more time you figure out, you spend trying to figure out what's wrong with a given patient and how to best care for them on an individual basis, the better they do and the cheaper care becomes because you're not catastrophic. You're not putting them in the hospital for stuff that's easily treatable and preventable. Mm-hmm. So once they started to cut back on doctors' fees, uh, that was the end of quality care. Mm-hmm. That was the beginning of these huge cost overruns right. in Medicare. And the more costs went up, the more restrictive they got, because that's all they know how to do as bureaucrats, right? Cut payments, put in all these hoops and, and uh, hurdles to go over. Uh, the pay for, pay for performance came in, you know, the MIPS computerized health records, all the stuff that came in under Obamacare. So, you know, uh, Medicare, Medicaid, yes, people enjoy them now. I'm on Medicare for what it's worth. Uh, Medicaid has always been a second-rate program because they don't pay doctors for the main reason. Uh, very few private physicians were able to take Medicaid patients in any, any large number. So that always became a clinic-type solution, which was second-tier, okay, mm-hmm. very clearly. Uh, and... It went downhill from there. Uh, so the net result was, and I believe this is intentional, to f- get rid of independent doctors. Yeah. No, and it's for, we've seen that uh, happen is that I think, you know, if you go back uh, to fairly recent times, you know, it was when we began uh, in medicine, uh, the practice model was, you know, uh, a solo physician or a small group. Uh, and those have been subsumed. You know, I recently went to uh, a reunion of my medical school uh, buddies, you know, all the people who went to medical school with me in the 80s. And uh, many of them are still in practice. Some are retired, of course, by now. Uh, but, you know, I asked them, you know, how's it going? And they said, well, you know, it's not as much fun as it used to be because, uh, well, I sold my practice to uh, the HMO or I sold my practice to the hospital. And now I'm an employee and I'm, I'm no longer accountable to my patients. I'm accountable to the insurance companies. Uh, and to the uh, healthcare bureaucrats. Uh, and it was kind of a, a bittersweet reunion because many of us reflected on, you know, how, uh, this has affected the quality of medicine and, you know, our personal, uh, enjoyment of the, you know, the, the creativity and the innovation that, that medicine represented for us. And, and that's the other half of this sordid tale the loss of independent physicians. If you're a hospital-employed physician or health system-employed physician, you cannot buck the system. And if they tell you that these are the guidelines we're following, you prescribe these drugs or take another job. Get out. We don't need you. There are plenty of people waiting to take your spot. Get the hell out. This is this position that they're in. And I feel for them because if they have a family to feed and mortgage to payment and mortgage payments and college tuition bills, et cetera. Not only that, but the enormous loans. Paycheck. I mean, what, what does it cost now? I mean, it could be you could have uh, half a million dollars in student loans uh, by the time you graduate from medical school. And, and that uh, leads you to make a lot of compromises. Uh, 
Exactly. They have got you by the literal cojones and they're not going <laughs> right. to let go. Yeah. And, and they have pushed these guidelines to not use hydroxychloroquine, which is coming from the NIH and the CDC, okay, and FDA. They've blocked its use, really. Uh, of course, you can still prescribe it, right? You still have your license to prescribe and people are doing it. But in a hospital system, no, it's yeah. verboten. You cannot use ivermectin. There have been lawsuits filed. Well, there, there's a lot of uh, pharmacies members. that won't, uh, and uh, hospital dispensaries that just won't, a doctor can write it, but they'll block it. You know, they won't allow it. The to hospital be won't allow it yeah, yeah. to the point where there have been family initiated lawsuits yep. to try to get their pay, their family member who's dying of COVID in the ICU, uh, ivermectin. It is absolutely horrific. Horrific. These lawyers are getting inundated with calls from around the country. Mm -hmm. Please help my father. Please help my mother who's dying and the hospital will not allow ivermectin to be used. Yeah. And we know and, uh, even in the late stages, based on Pierre Corey stuff, it can turn someone around and he's seen it many times and we, we've seen it. Right. So to, d to deny this is it, it's tantamount to murder, Ron. I, I, I hate to use a term like this, but when you have a treatment that's effective, these hospitals should be try put on trial for murder. Not not to mention practicing medicine without a license, but of course they get their lackeys, their employed physicians, to do the dirty work. Yeah, Richard, you know, we divide our podcast into two parts. Uh, what I want to do is return okay. to this subject uh, in part two. Uh, our discussion is about. An article that I recommend very highly to you by today's guest, Dr. Richard Amerling, A-M-E-R-L-I-N-G. It's entitled The Tyranny of Evidence-Based Medicine, particularly in light of the current pandemic. And uh, we'll link it to our show notes for today's podcast. It's uh, well worth reading. It's a quick read. And uh, you can uh, get a summary of his thoughts there. We'll be back in just a moment. I'm Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and this is Intelligent Medicine.